lovely. Hello, hello. This is Lori and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England, and you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. Dedicated to the people that love to know all the spooky and gruesome details about serial killers, haunted houses, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. Today, we are starting a new segment called Damn Internet, You Scary! You Scary! <laughs> Where we break down all those creepy internet urban legends to find out if they're real or fake, their origins, and how influential they are in society today. So sit back, pop some corn, and enjoy! Welcome back to the show, and for those new to the podcast, I'll say thanks for tuning in. As I said in the intro, we're covering internet urban legends today, and for this episode, we're talking about one of the most famous that has been a topic of heated debate since 2009, Slenderman. This mysterious cryptid was born out of one especially creative man 14 years ago and has since then become an internet sensation that has sparked a massive cult following. Pretty much everyone knows who he is. We're going to cover how the legend started, whether we think it's real or fake, and the crime that made it infamous, the Slenderman stabbings. And here we go. Sometimes I walk at night alone. He follows me home. He follows me home. Sometimes he speaks in mumbles and moans. I mimic his tone, repeating his poem. Wraps up my hands and leads me to his throne. Forever we roam, forever we roam. He tells me that one day we'll share a soul. And now I know this is my home. May 31st, 2014. Detective Thomas Casey sits in the interrogation room of the Waukesha County, Wisconsin Police Department. An unusual suspect sits beside him, shirt covered in blood, rocking, playing with her feet, and singing to herself. Twelve-year-old Morgan Geyser. At 9.50 that morning, the 911 dispatcher received a horrific phone call about another 12-year-old girl that had been stabbed and laying on the side of Big Ben Road. She had crawled out of the woods where a bicyclist found her, covered in blood and begging for help. When asked to attack her, she said, My best friend. Back in the interrogation room, Morgan, when asked about the incident, just kept saying over and over, it was necessary. The officers of the Wakusha Police Department would soon find out that this near-fatal tragedy was inspired by the need to make a sacrifice to something they weren't equipped to handle, Something not of this world. Slender Man. If only you hadn't looked back. Though it was autumn, the day had seemed long, and the brief walk toward home short. As the sunlight began to fade, you and your two friends left the playground behind and trudged reluctantly home knowing that you would be forced to pick up the games and conversations the next day. 
The next day, that never came. If only you hadn't looked back. But you had. Turning just for a moment, you had glanced back toward the tree line, seen the fingers of their branches clawing up toward the sky, and beside them, the figure. At first, you thought you'd be mistaken, that your eyes in the hazy blur of twilight were playing tricks on you, but no. When you looked again, he was still there, taller than any man could be, even thinner than the willowy branches that extended ever upward from the trees. He loomed in the distance, like the shadow of some horrible, dark truth, and you knew instantly that you had to look away, that if you didn't tear your eyes from the blank, featureless face, then soon the blank would wash over you, become you, and you would walk slowly but surely, as if pulled by some magnetic force toward him, toward him though you feared him, though you were scared of his unnatural height, the aching blank whiteness of his face, the arms that seemed to stretch towards you, and the slithering tentacles behind. You turned, screwing up your eyes, telling, willing yourself not to look, not to see, not to give in and go to him. You screamed to the others, telling them the same, telling them not to look. But as you open your eyes, you realize they had already looked. They were already gone. Possibly the most famous creepypasta character of all time, and certainly the one that has crossed most frequently into mainstream media, the Slender Man is a character born of a variety of earlier influences, but which itself represents an evolution in the uses and development of folklore. Violent, real-life events linked to the Slender Man character increased its infamy and even led to a moral panic based around the possible negative influences and danger that the fictional character posed to the children. Through adaption and modification by various authors means that Slender Man's appearance can vary somewhat depending on the source, the most common features remain the same. The character is usually depicted as an abnormally tall humanoid, usually wearing a dark suit and tie. Slenderman's face is almost always completely featureless and often either white or pale gray, though in some depictions this blank face does feature an animalistic mouth. Slenderman is often said to be able to extend or stretch his limbs, particularly his arms at will, and either has tentacles protruding, just visible from his back, has tentacle-like appendages in the places of his arms. The character commonly inhabits liminal spaces such as the entrance to woods and forests or areas of abandoned ground on the outskirts of more populated areas. Whilst there are a wide variety of Slenderman stories out there, much of the character's effectiveness comes from the fact that there is no single definitive version, the initial post that introduced the character being only fragmentary quotes linked to an image rather than an actual story or complete narrative. Much like his appearance, however, though the details alter some elements seem to remain as constants, such as the character appearing by woods or forests, enticing children away from their parents and friends never to be seen again. Another common trope that Slenderman exerts is an influence upon the victims, making them the perpetrators of crimes or violent actions. The character has also been said to cause illness, particularly a cough known as slender sickness, and to induce those who encounter him to suicide. 
These latter features, namely incitement to violence or suicide, became more prevalent and commonly associated with the character in a case of art imitating life after real-life violent events or cases of attempted suicide were linked to the character. Wow. Yeah. Despite some media outlets adding to the aura that Slenderman mythos by claiming that the figure's origins are unclear, in fact, the character's origin is easily traceable. Slenderman, in his original form, was created by Eric Knudsen under the alias Victor Surge. Knudsen was responding to a call on Something Awful for posters to contribute digitally altered photographs that would serve as the basis for new mythologies or stories. Knudsen's effort, posted on June 10, 2009, showed groups of teenagers and children with the now familiar figure of Slenderman standing in the background. At first glances, the image seems normal, but the figure's anomalous size and featureless face once noticed give the pictures an eerie and unsettling feeling. Alongside the images, Nudson provided small snippets out of context. Text purported to be witness accounts that give him hints about the scenes depicted and their relation to the anomalous figure of the Slenderman. By attaching short snippets of text with his images, Nudson transformed the lone image into the first Slenderman story, albeit in a non-linear and fragmentary form. Following this initial appearance, the Slenderman character was then picked up by users who either fit him into their own narratives or wrote short accounts of alleged encounters with the character, sculpting as they did some of the features recognized today. Yeah, so this just kind of blew up everywhere yeah (laughs) with each new detail and new account posters helped in building a mythos around the character that because of its viral scope and myriad of conflicting details and accounts did not retain a canon version and this process happened fast the day after nudson's post a user named leech code 5 posted a photo with a backstory featuring slenderman by June 14th, a user by the name of Trenchmall had used Slenderman in his own story. A user known as Thorough posted a story about a figure in Germany who stalked children on the edge of the forest, providing an invented historical reference point for the character. On June 20th in the same year, Slenderman became the subject of a YouTube video series based upon an earlier Something Awful post by user Troy Wagner. The series, which alleged to the detailed interaction or discoveries about the Slender Man made whilst working on a film project named Marble Hornets. This series of videos was supported by a Twitter feed and a second YouTube channel allowed the character to move from being a text image and forum based phenomenon to being an ARG with the character now being referred to, discussed, and modified across a number of different platforms and modalities by an ever-growing number of contributors. Well. We also have a short story originally created on the Creepypasta website, anonymously written on January 14th, 2010. So all credit goes to the creators of the page. I own no rights to this. After waking up with a jolt, the girl laid in bed for a few seconds longer. Reaching over to switch on her bedside lamp, she tried to remember exactly what had stolen her sweet slumber away. When she couldn't, the brunette swung her legs over the side of the bed and heaved herself up. Checking the time on her phone, she snorted when she saw it was midnight, the witching hour. Knowing that sleep would only evade her, she left her bedroom for the kitchen, a good cup of coffee on her mind. As she passed by her front door, a chill spread like liquid fire down her spine. It's only winter, she told herself, focusing again on the coffee plan. Measuring out scoops, water, and preparing her cup kept her occupied. But as the dark liquid boiled, She had nothing left to keep her mind from wandering off. The chill returned, and she couldn't help but glance behind her to the front door. It stood there, innocently enough, 
just like always. The deadbolt was still in place, and she could see nothing amiss with it. Turning back to her coffee, she did her best to forget about the feeling. With her cup in hand, she started back towards her bedroom. As she walked by the front door, she decided that a quick glance out of the peephole would help calm her restless mind. The chill worsened with each step she took towards the door, and further away from the safety of the warmth of her blankets. She pressed her empty hand against the cold metal door and took a deep breath before leading her eye to the peephole. At first, she could only see an inky blackness and somehow seemed to swirl in itself. When she blinked in surprise, the void melted away. She wished it hadn't. In its place, there stood what she could only guess was once a man. The limbs were long and inhumanly awkward, with bulky joints branching off onto several arms, not unlike the branches of a tree. The creature was draped in a black suit, somehow making the thing more nightmarish to her. The icing on the proverbial cake, however, was what passed as the hellish thing's face. It was as though her mind blurred the ghastly visage to spare itself further shock and horror. She shoved herself away from the door with the hand still pressed against it. A scalding mug of coffee fell, the liquid burning her bare legs as she fell backwards and tried to crawl away from the door. She knew, somehow, that her mind hadn't been playing tricks on her. As she crab-walked away from the door, she watched his tendrils as black as the void she first saw snake around through the cracks. The girl was trapped between the instinct to flee and the gut feeling to not turn her back to the door. When the door jolted, the urge to flee overcame her, and she slipped in the burning liquid as she tried to make it back to her room. She knew deep down that she was trapping herself in a corner, but she had to get away from the door. The girl was halfway down the hallway when she heard the previously locked door creak open. She screamed and slipped back into a wall, cracking her chin on it and stunning her. After that, there was only blackness. Nicole? A warm male voice snapped the woman out of her trance. As she turned around, she was met by one of her sister's doctors. She nodded, not sure if she should say anything, or even if she could find her voice if she did have something to say. That morning, she had gotten an urgent phone call from the hospital, saying that her sister, Lindsay, was there. Before they had even let her see her, the doctor's hand pulled her off to the side and insisted that they talk to her about what might have happened. Phrases like self-inflicted and assault had been thrown around, and Nicole felt her mind reel. She still hadn't fully understood what they had been saying until she saw Lindsay with her own eyes. Her little sister had a bandage wrapped around her head, covering both of her ears as well as her eyes. They said it was to keep her now-deadened eyes from drying out and to try keep infection out of the wounds Lindsay had made into her ears. The doctors had guessed that either she or someone else had jammed a pencil into them to keep her off balance or to deafen herself against something. There was the mix of first and second degree burns on her hands, legs, and feet. From what was assumed to be the coffee, her neighbors found slipped all over the entry to her apartment. As Nicole walked into her sister's hospital room the first time, she thought she had spied the silhouette of a man in the window. That, she knew, was impossible. Her sister's room was on the third story of the hospital. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Much of the fascination with Slenderman is rooted in the overall aura of mystery that he is wrapped in. 
Despite the fact that it is rumored he kills children almost exclusively, it is difficult to say whether or not his only objective is slaughter. Oftentimes, it is either reported to be recorded that he can be found in sections of woods, and these generally tend to be suburban. He also has been reported to be seen with large groups of children, as many photographs portray. It is commonly thought that he resides in woods and forests and preys on children. He seems unconcerned with being exposed in the daylight or captured in photos. It is often thought as well that he enjoys stalking people who become overly paranoid about his existence, purposely giving them glimpses of himself in order to further frighten them. For this reason, it seems like Slenderman very much enjoys psychologically torturing his victims. He also often appears to float or drift rather than walk, which suggests the possibility of him being an ethereal being rather than a creature or a man. This would also explain why he is able to remain mobile in spite of his poorly proportioned body. Yeah, that would make a lot more sense. Yeah. Even though Slender Man was fabricated on something off of forums, or was he, some people have already claimed sightings. He is seen mostly at night peering into open windows and walks out in front of lone motorists on secluded roads. His main intentions appear to be kidnapping children, as when he is seen near them in photographs, they usually disappear shortly afterward. The Slenderman has also inspired many stories, such as those of Marble Hornets. In the end, though, his purpose remains unknown. An interesting take on Slenderman by a pasta member who is relying on the Marble Hornet series for evidence slash facts states, There has been a big misconception about my pal the Slenderman due to the appearance of this article. He does not have hair or a face. Everything else is correct. There is also some questioning as to whether or not there is more than one. I find that unlikely. It is most likely Slendy fucking with your head in order to make you think that there is more than one, which he has been known to do. As of now, Slendy has three or four known accomplices. Those are Hoodie, Maskey, The Rake, and possibly The Observer. Not much is known yet because the next episode of the Noah Maxwell ARG has not been released. In the Marble Hornets ARG, Hoodie and Maskey are possibly his followers. In the Everyman Hybrids ARG, The Rake seems to be working with him, but we aren't really sure if that's true or not. I love the names they give these guys. It's ridiculous, Masky, but... hoodie, it sounds like something my 11-year-old would tell me about. Exactly, but it's at the same time, they, they take these ridiculous names to these creatures and still scare the shit out of you. Which is still absolutely ridiculous. Uh-huh. <laughs> other internet sources that got a hold of the legend sparked other types of entertainment regarding this legend. One of the most popular was the video game Slender the Eight Pages in 2012 that had over 2 million downloads in their first month. I don't know how I never heard of that one. I have. I've yeah. seen and I've seen YouTube clips of people playing it. I want to look into that. I yeah. like those sorts of things. I've never myself played it, but it does look interesting. Like, it's a survival horror game oh, cool. meant to freak you the fuck out. So, <clears throat> interested. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the earliest argued reference to the legend is within the cave paintings found in the Serra de Capivara National Park in the northeast of Brazil, which are believed to date from as far back as 9000 BC. These paintings show a strangely elongated character leading a child by the hand, make no reference to the extra appendages. The next known possible reference to the Slender Man comes from around 3100 BC in Lower Egypt with references to the Thief of the Gods or the Thief of Cuck, becoming commonplace during the reign of Pharaoh Wasner. 
hieroglyphic carvings representing the thief were found in the pharaoh's tomb who was rumored to have some kind of encounter with the entity the carvings resemble a strange figure with multiple upper limbs one that has never been found in any other hieroglyph language wow that's really neat yeah it's it's kind of interesting like i don't know if the creator of that photo knew about stuff like this possibility And he just took that and he's like, oh, if I can expand on this, which is a brilliant idea. Yeah, seriously, because then it puts that whole root in maybe there's truth to it. Exactly. The mystery prevails. But Mm -hmm. like, whoa, what if it really is a real thing? Yeah, so genius. Totally could be and Mm -hmm. well placed. Yeah. Renowned German woodcutter Hans Freckenberg created at least two woodcuts featuring a character he described as Derrita or the knight during the mid-16th century that were discovered in the Hultzberg Castle in 1883. Whilst Freckenberg was well known for his realistic depiction of human anatomy, something that was unusual among woodcuts of the time, these pictures featured a skeletal, multi-limbed character. Historians are unsure of the exact symbolic nature of the character, with some claiming that it is a personification of the religious wars that raged in Europe at the time while others say it represents the mysterious plagues that have been believed to be the reason for the mysterious abandoning of the Hatsburg Castle and the nearby village in 1543. However, many insist that Freckenberg was attempting to represent Der Grossmann, or the Tall Man. According to legend, he was a fairy who lived in the Black Forest. Bad children who crept into the woods at night would be relentlessly chased by Der Grossmann, who wouldn't leave them be until he either caught them or they were forced to tell their parents of their wrongdoing. Even then, there is a chilling account from an old journal dating from about 1702, mm-hmm. and it reads, My child, my Lars, he is gone, taken from his bed. The only thing that we found was a scrap of black clothing. It feels like cotton, but it is softer, thicker. Lars came into my bedroom yesterday, screaming at the top of his lungs that the angel is outside. I asked him what he was talking about, and he told me some nonsense fairy story about Der Grossmann. He said he went into the groves by our village and found one of my cows dead, hanging from a tree. I thought nothing of it at first, but now he is gone. We must find Lars, and my family must leave now before we are killed. I'm sorry, my son. I should have listened. May God forgive me. So, first off, if your child comes in screaming that one of your cows is just strung up in a tree. Hanging from a tree. Yeah. It didn't die of natural causes. That bitch was killed. And you didn't believe him. Wouldn't like, you at least go look? Go fucking look. <laughs> Lazy <laughs> asshole. <laughs> and the next day, your kid's gone. Yeah. Fucking mm, hell. I wonder. <laughs> Should have checked up on that dumb shit. There is also a Romanian fairy tale which tells the legend of the tall man featuring this description which may have taken to refer to the slender man. The tall man stood in a clearing, dressed as a nobleman, all in black shadows lay over him dark as a cloudy midnight he had many arms all long and boneless as snakes all sharp as swords and they writhed like worms on nails he did not speak but made his intentions known in the fairy tale the tall man causes a mother to kill her husband and child before he slid from a fireplace and clenched her in his burning embrace whoa yeah There is also an English myth referring to the tree man who is said to have a slim body with appendages that look like tree branches. He is only known to be seen in the woods and was used as a story that parents told their children to thwart bad behavior. There have been quite a few disappearances of children that have been said to be linked to the tree man. 
So far from being simply a flash in the pan internet meme, Slenderman and particularly the way in which the character grew within the public consciousness has been the subject of serious academic investigation within the world of folklore studies, with scholars pointing out that the aspects of collectivity, variability, and performance in the development and spread of Slenderman's story identify as a true piece of folklore. So this has been something that has passed down since like 9,000 BC. That's insane. Yeah. It's not just some like weird mm. new fad that's popped up. No, there's basis in other things, which you could say for any of the other like mythological or like mm-hmm. any of the creatures that we've covered or heard about. Yeah. There's some basis for it. Mm. The egalitarian way in which the character was constructed, his attributes, characteristics, and intentions being argued about and discussed by a range of different contributors, and the fact that the details might change depending on who is telling the tale and to whom it is fascinating to folklorists, some of whom have argued that the development of Slenderman in this way demonstrates a new stage in evolution of folklore as a whole. The argument basically goes that prior to the invention of the printed word, folklore was spread by word of mouth. The basic outline of a story remained the same, but since the story was being retold on different occasions, with attention given to the audience's preferences, details and some aspects of the story would change. Once everything was printed, accepted versions came into being because the story could be codified. With the freedom, anonymity, and multiplicity afforded by the internet, that rigid structure is now breaking down in the original features of folklore where things can be changed. Details vary and specifics become blurry and returning. The Slenderman and the way in which the character was developed are a prime example of this. Interestingly, this collaborative development also contributes to the effectiveness of the character and fits perfectly with the fact that he is depicted as faceless. By not having definable or recognizable features, Slenderman remains formless and entirely malleable, in the same way the universal boogeyman does, a creature known to be a threat by all but upon which anyone can project their own fears. Yeah. Some scholars have also pointed out how the features that did develop to define the Slenderman's characteristics have their roots in much older folklore. For example, the character's status as a malevolent force dwelling in the forest or woods and threatening harm to children has massive echoes of the traditional Big Bad Wolf narratives or tales of the Headless Horseman, whilst the vagueness of his appearance and the intentions and proclivity for kidnapping children links him to fairies and fey folk, a link that has been explored by noted scholars in in folklore, the kidnapping element also ties the Slenderman character to other mythic bagmen known to carry off children, such as the European tradition of the bagman, who would take children away. The stories surrounding Slenderman and his ability to seemingly entice children to come to him rather than offering them violence, at least in any form that is explicitly described in the stories, has heavy echoes of the Pied Piper of Hamlet, this mythic figure who had the ability to induce rodents to follow him using his pipe and was therefore able to drive them out of Hamlin, was double-crossed by the people of the city who refused to pay him. As punishment, he used the same pipe and magical ability on the children of the city, leading them to follow him out of the city in a mesmerized procession. 
it has been pointed out that outside the internet, the Slender Man retains the power to concern and worry parents because he represents the classic notion of something that is a threat to children that they cannot fully explain or define. Again, this is partly due to the Slender Man's inherent vagueness in what most could not pin down his origins to, for example, a particular television show or game. He instead seems to concern parents to have been conjured from nothing and yet be a character that is known amongst children and teenagers. The idea that characters reported to be able to entice children and adolescents within the story is so enticing and popular with them in the real world as a blurring of boundaries that parents found threatening, especially when Slenderman's influence was seen to have extended beyond the internet and into real life. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Mm-hmm. In 2014, a girl in Wisconsin was stabbed 19 times by two classmates who then attributed their actions to being in the service of or trying to meet the demands laid down by Slenderman. Whilst one of the perpetrators also claimed to have spoken to Ninja Turtles and characters from the Harry Potter series, excuse me, what? It was the reference to the ominous sounding Slenderman that caught the public's imagination particularly as this was something that the more tech-savvy younger generation seemed to be aware of and which their parents were in the dark about, with the police chief of the area where the stabbings occurred adding to the sense of trepidation by commenting that the internet is full of dark and wicked things. You know, I'd honestly expect people to jump all over the fucking Harry Potter thing there because the fact that at least the religious families already do is like, oh, stop watching that witchcraft nonsense. For the night is dark and full of terrors. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Dementors. <laughs> For my Game of Thrones buddies out there. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, following the incident, a moral panic arose in the United States with parents and teachers voicing their concern about the possible negative influence of this slender man. These concerns were further driven into a frenzy by incidents in 2014 and 2015, which were linked to the slender man mythology. In the 2014 incident, a young girl was alleged to have set fire to her home in Florida with her mother and sibling inside. Jesus with the media reports later pointing out that amongst their things, notably Soul Eater by Atsushi Okobu, the girl had been reading stories of the Slender Man. In the 2015 incident, a spate of attempted suicides amongst young people on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation was linked back to the character who was cited as being an influence. The involvement of supernatural forces in the suicide epidemic was underlined when a high-ranking official from the Aglala Sioux tribe mentioned belief in a suicide spirit. Conversely, it is interesting to note that as the Slenderman entered the mainstream media and became linked to these real-life incidents, the character's popularity online showed significant signs of waning with a massive dip in popularity and related output. It is also significant that it was in the wake of these real-life incidents that depictions of Slenderman as a benevolent or protecting figure first began to emerge. The fact that the Slenderman character and mythology was constructed by a disparate collection of creators over an extended period of time means that pinning down individual influences that may have contributed to the character's construction can be difficult. However, it is possible to trace some figures, tropes, and characteristics that almost undoubtedly help shape the figure of the Slenderman. Amongst the influences that Nudson has acknowledged are Stephen King, the figure of the tall man in the horror movie Phantasm, the work of H.P. Lovecraft, as suggested by the appearance of tentacles, and the mad gasser of Mattoon. One of the most immediately obvious influences not mentioned by the author are the men in black characters that populate many sci-fi television programs and have one incarnation in the Matrix films. 
Usually these figures are thought to represent some shadowy government agency rather than being cryptids or malevolent entities in their own rights, but the dark suit is definitely reminiscent. A spin-off of this theme and other possible influences are the characters of the gentleman from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Hush, though they do sport facial features. Unlike the Slenderman, are malevolent beings with pale skin, bald heads, and dark suits who bear striking resemblances to the depictions of Slenderman. So that's funny because I never thought of that. However, it also reminds me of um, Doctor Who, The Silent. Yeah. They're very similar, except for the fact that when you see them and then you look away, you immediately forget. But in how they look, minus the facial features themselves, are very reminiscent of Slenderman. Yeah, exactly. No, there's so there's so many. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Other suggested influences upon the character's later development are Jack Skellington from <laughs> The Nightmare Before Christmas, who again sports a bald, pale head, though admittedly not featureless, is himself incredibly thin and wears a dark suit. Or for the gamers, again, there's the Endermen of Minecraft <laughs> that were said to be loosely based off of Slenderman. Yeah, I mean, that that I've always thought for yeah. Minecraft. I mean, they did actually create a kind of eight pages game version in Minecraft did as they? well. Yeah. Oh, I gotta check so, that out. So... <laughs> Finally, one of the most compelling possible influences is in the DC Comics character, The Question. This character, as well as wearing a suit, has an entirely featureless face and bears an uncanny resemblance to many of the Slenderman depictions seen in fan art. Whilst the existence of this character and the striking similarity in appearance does not necessarily mean that it was a direct influence upon the image of Slenderman or was even known to the character's creator, it is interesting that Nudson originally posted as Victor Surge, whilst in the DC Comics, the question's secret identity is Victor Sage. Whoa, that is far too close to not be <laughs> yeah. direct influence. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dr. Trevor J. Blank, digital folklorist, says that Slenderman is the modern-day boogeyman. Because he's faceless, quiet, because he doesn't speak words, it's open to a lot of interpretation, a lot of possibilities, and projection. It varies from person to person as to what Slenderman actually is. He could be the creature that lives in your closet. He's the guy that drives the windowless white van. He's Ugh. the faceless stranger who kidnaps kids. It encapsulates symbolically a lot of the societal fears that we've had for ages and ages. It kind of wraps them all up and makes a good narrative because really Slenderman can be whoever you want him to be. Yeah, yeah, he's a very uh, easily narrated character. Dr. Trevor states that we can look back and try to figure out how Slenderman was created. As stated before, it was created back in 2009 by Victor Surge as part of a Photoshop contest to make something look real that really wasn't. From that post, it blew up and spread to every immediate available platform on the web, from games to forum stories, Tumblr, DeviantArt, 4chan's Paranormal Board, YouTube, most popular in the Marble Hornets channel, which, side note, I wasn't avid fan of them for the time they made their found footage Slenderman series to the point that I bought the DVDs of their videos, even went to a convention and got them autographed by the creators. Of course, I did the fangirl thing. I was waiting in line thinking of all the cool shit I was going to say to them when I got up to their table. And as soon as I did, mine flatlined and I was just like, hi, <laughs> you're awesome. <laughs> and they were just like, thanks. So are you. I also got stuck in an elevator with them at the hotel, which led to an awkward conversation about upcoming videos because I'm a dumbass that can't English when I meet celebrities, apparently. But I digress. 
<laughs> those videos scared the hell out of me because they were done so well and were so believable. These guys really were fantastic at what they did. That's really cool. And if you have the DVDs, I need to steal those. Oh, absolutely. Or we just pull them up on YouTube. They were originally on there. So oh, well, see if they're fucking... still on there. I haven't watched them in uh, years. I but... think it's more fun to steal your DVDs. <laughs> what else have you stolen toy? No. <laughs> Lies. If I steal anything, it's because I'm hiding it somewhere in your room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I guess it's not really stealing, more just misplacing your shit for you. <laughs> God, I love you. <laughs> Getting back to it. All of these sites I mentioned have a huge affinity for fan art in general, and YouTube was the international hub for non-English speakers to break their way into the myth. So it spread all over the world. Of course it did. Yeah. Dr. Trevor continues saying that Slenderman is an opportunity for people to see where they are nervous about things, what excites them, and what brings them together, because it changes based on who's telling the story. He says, quote, Often in the adult world, we forget how much it sucks to be a kid. Speaking on the criminal case I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, Slenderman can also be seen as a guardian angel. Slenderman is the Grim Reaper, but with a heart. These pictures showing up on the playground are not as much to snatch kids away, but to rescue them. Stories like this can be a powerful aphrodisiac for someone who is lonely or is troubled or is trying to find their way in the world. Slenderman has this entire community of people online who are feeding into the narrative, who are creating their own versions of this. It's constantly, exponentially growing, end quote. Wow. Yeah, I mean, definitely can see that. Mm-hmm. People in general are captivated by Slenderman and wish to pass on or copy images of him. The fact that two 12-year-old girls decided to sacrifice their friend to Slenderman just proves how much power the internet or a meme or a fad can hold. That's a significant amount of power. Yeah. Unconsciously, Slenderman comes from a tradition that goes way, way back. To a great extent, the Brothers Grimm collected that deal with the universal human struggles that we continue to have today. That is why people choose to tell their own horror stories of what is happening in the world today. Slenderman is a story about a character who may feed upon children. It's reminiscent of the Brothers Grimm tale of the Pied Piper, as I mentioned earlier, and I actually have the full story here. Many years ago, a town was being devastated by rats in the gutters, on the streets, in the cellars. The Pied Piper comes out of nowhere and he's a very odd, strange looking person and he has a flute or some type of pipe that he plays. The strange man said, if you want me to get rid of the rats, then you must pay me. So they said, yes, as much as you want, if you can get rid of them. The Piper began blowing on the pipe and the rats began following him. The Piper had all of the rats jump into the river. Then the mayor and the councilman cheated him. Then the piper goes, you know, there are other tunes that I can play and ways that I could repay you that you'll never forget. And so the piper brought the pipe to his lips again and began playing. The people froze, but the children followed him. There was a sudden opening in the mountain and all the children headed for this opening. And as the last one entered, the mountain closed and the piper went inside as well. Depending on the time and the person telling the story, the Piper can be many different things. So he's a very mysterious figure. We don't know whether he's evil or good. We don't know whether he's going to do anything to these children. The children never return. Nobody ever hears about them, but the Pied Piper does live on. If there's one thing that the cult of Slenderman is about, it's about making it all believable, especially by remaining unverifiable. It's really kind of how folk belief works, because you can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Slenderman is fake or real. Right. 
The theory is that the moment you know about him, he knows about you. There's no way to summon him, but there's also no way to make him stop following you around. Slenderman is a very powerful point of peer transmission. The more it's spread, the more likely people are to believe in him, to become infected with this idea of a faceless monster stalker that haunts you and drives you insane. Slenderman is the thing that we fear, but don't actually encounter. He holds true to the most powerful fear in the human condition, the fear of the unknown. And after a brief commercial break, we will be back to discuss how this internet sensation caused an uproar all over the country with an unbelievable shocking crime that caused the near death of a young girl betrayed by those she trusted the most. Oh, goody. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If Something Wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! On May 30th, 2014, three friends, Morgan Geyser, Anissa Weir, and Peyton Lutner, were getting together for Morgan's 12th birthday. They were excited to hang out at the skating rink, have fun, and eat pizza, and afterwards go back to Morgan's house for a sleepover. Unbeknownst to Peyton, it was all a ploy. An opportunity for her best friends Morgan and Anissa to execute a plan that they had thought of six months prior to sacrifice Peyton in an attempt to appease their new obsession, Slenderman. Holy shit, six months? Yeah. Wow, talk about premeditated. Holy <laughs> fuck. Morgan Geyser had been an odd girl her whole life. Her parents felt she didn't quite fit the norm of what you'd expect a typical little girl to be. Angie Geyser, Morgan's mom, said that Morgan was a surprise and didn't know how to feel about it at first, but she knew that she loved her and that she had changed their lives drastically for the better. Morgan had always been quirky and marched to the beat of her own drum. Even from little on, she didn't care what people thought about her, which Angie thinks is a wonderful trait, especially for a girl, because girls are usually so self-conscious of what other people think of them, and Morgan was never like that. She always just did her own thing, and if people didn't like it, it was their problem. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely a very valuable trait to have for a little girl. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I do have to agree with her on that statement, because not caring about others' opinions is an excellent trait to have, especially in someone so young. To be able to hone that ability from a young age, in my opinion, is valuable, because up until, fuck, I'm in my 30s, and like a couple years ago, it took me to really get my self-esteem fully built up to where I didn't give a fuck what people think about me anymore. Oh, yeah. So and I'm told that that's just a thing that happens once you hit your 30s. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that's it maybe that's the trigger 
<laughs> you get to the fuck everybody else's opinion stage. Yeah, because, you know, 30 before, you're just a fucking big ball of neurodivergent people-pleasing. Yeah, so, yeah, no. fun times. <laughs> One thing that stuck her parents odd, however, was that she never seemed to react as you'd expect someone to, i.e. to, like, movies and stuff. If something bad happened to the main characters, she would have zero empathy for them. Angie remembered watching Bambi with her for the first time and was worried to watch it with her because they thought she would be upset when the mother died. But instead, Morgan just shouted, run, Bambi, run, get out of there, save yourself, and wasn't sad about it at all. And she was only like three or four at the time. It's strange that she wasn't sad about it, but at least she had compassion for Bambi. Like, get out, go, run. I know when I saw that as a kid, I cried like a fucking baby. Oh, so did I. Yep. <laughs> Fuck, I still do sometimes. It's like, oh, poor baby. Although it did take me a little while to realize the mother was shot. Yeah. No. I, I think it took me like halfway through the movie and then I realized, wait, she died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought they just got separated. When Morgan got a little older, Angie decided to talk with her about the birds and the bees and about the changes that she would go through during puberty, getting her period and whatnot. And after she was finished, Morgan looked at her and said, Mommy, I don't think I believe you. That doesn't really happen. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> instead of asking questions in response or being scared or confused, I mean, it depends, I guess, on what age Angie told her this stuff determines how she would have reacted. I mean, maybe, but just immediate reaction is disbelief. I don't, I think you're lying to me. That's not real. You're just trying to freak me out. Uh, yeah, my parents didn't tell me shit. They just threw a pamphlet at me and went, your body is changing. Learn about it. I don't remember <laughs> my mom saying anything to me about these things. Yeah. No, they, she figured, like, my mom figured, like, since they were teaching it in school and Although she- they didn't have to do shit. Yeah, they didn't have to do shit. Like I said, she just threw the pamphlet at me and I had to learn on my own, which was <laughs> awesome. Great. I'm not divulging the fuck-ups I had throughout that oh, yeah, on no. this. Absolutely not. <laughs> But there were, in fact, several points in Morgan's life that she didn't react in the way Angie expected a little girl to react. Angie was aware that Morgan was interested in Slenderman. She would show her parents some of the characters and stories. While her mom wasn't thrilled about her interest, she didn't see the harm in it either. Her parents never thought for a moment that she would believe that he was real. She believed in Santa, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and believed in Santa until she was even 11 years old yeah so angie thought what parent tells her kid that santa's not real who's in a hurry for their child to grow up yeah no that's all normal all of those things are extremely normal especially for that age yeah and angie even recalled when she herself was a teenager and would bike home from the library with stephen king books namely it and felt that most kids around morgan's age were into horror and scary stories so they thought that they were just normal scary things on the internet nothing else yeah so really nothing else behind that what i'd like to know is what causes the obsession with horror because like my my one of my children is 11 and he's obsessed with the horror like most of his classmates and stuff they've got like bendy and the ink machine and things like that five nights at freddy's five nights at freddy's yeah the back rooms all of these things are are things that he brings up quite constantly and like it's fairly normal but i wonder what causes that obsession at that age i would like to see that as a psychological analysis you know (laughs) yeah no same i mean again i I was too at that age like 10 11 years old is when i really started getting into 
horror things. Like I, I wasn't really into the Goosebumps all that much as the Fear Street series. I became obsessed with those. Yeah. And then everything else just kind of followed. So I get it. But at the same time, like you, I don't really understand what made it click. Yeah. Angie never thought her daughter could come up with such an elaborate plan on her own. And of course she was right. The third girl at the birthday party the day prior to the stabbing, Anissa Weir, played a major role in this horrific crime. Anissa was another girl that always felt out of place. On the outside, she seemed like this normal 12-year-old girl. She had her own pink fairy room where she spent hours practicing her choir, hanging out with her cat Tiger, and FaceTiming with her classmates. Bill, Anissa's father, expressed that him and his children had a very open, understanding relationship with normal rules. Anissa's bedroom door was only ever closed when she was doing choir practice. Other than that, he had a general no-closed-doors rule in his home for all of his kids, unless they were getting out of the shower, getting ready for bed. Uh, She had to turn off her iPad at 7.30 to come downstairs for family time, and Bill would always come up to check on her occasionally after school, And she never argued it back and always seemed to be very compliant on how he ran the house. So nothing out of place there. So when later asked about if Bill ever saw any signs to cause her behavior, he would always say no. And when the accusations came of him not being involved enough to see the signs, he responded with, apart from sitting in the corner and watching every move she makes, I don't know how much more involved I could have been. No, seriously, because even so... From what I understand from both children, all of the things that their parents were doing, all of the things that they were into and that they were showing on the outside, there were no red flags for their parents to catch. Yeah. Everything that they were doing was actively involved in the life. It's not like they were just ignoring them or pushing them away or treating them badly. No, their home lives seemed very normal. Yeah, and their parents seemed very accepting of them and put together like regardless yeah which is also not a thing you see in a typical run-of-the-mill american bread family yeah it's you know either you're the slightest bit off kilter no no you're the devil oh my gosh yeah and they're not like super helicopter parents no you know so it's it's really does strike me as odd like you're going over this what the fuck sparked it yeah so Anissa's parents had split up in 2012, which was the first emotional rift that could have been the building block to her behavior. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, divorce isn't exactly, you know, the nicest thing for kids to go through. No. But she ended up diving further into the rabbit hole with the iPad that she got for Christmas one year. Her mother said that when she got it, she spent a lot of her time in her room and watched videos that were funny to her. Nothing that was gross or depressing and emotionally degrading, but it also gave her a way not to socialize with her family. So, of course, her mother regretted giving it to her in the first place. I mean, that's fair. But again, she's at that age where she's going to pull away a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. So natural. Everything started out innocently, according to Bill. He recalled Anissa showing him pictures up in her bedroom that she had drawn of Slenderman, Jack Skellington, and thought nothing of it. But later on, it was found out that Anissa had started getting into darker things due to the access she had to the internet, which I'm sure they didn't have any type of parental blocks on it, which should have been a thing in both of these girls' cases, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. But again, if they trusted their kids, you know... You, you should keep a closer eye on that and, like, check your kid's history 
every once in a while. Like, legit, go and look at your kid's history. It's not difficult. Yeah. Like, don't violate their privacy, but yeah. don't, you know, just, just glances to make sure that, you know, they're not being hurtful to anybody or anybody's hurting them. Just like, make sure they're being shit. safe. Yeah, exactly. No, and you'll find out later, honestly, why I made that statement of, like, there should have been, like, deadbolt, hardcore parental locks on all their shit. Yeah. Anissa's internet and YouTube history leaned towards the creepy and macabre. There was a video she watched where the viewer answered questions as they passed on the screen, and at the end, depending on how you answered the questions, it would determine whether or not you were a psychopath. Oh, <laughs> I haven't taken that one specifically, but I'm sure myself as well as countless other people that I'm take pretty sure personality quizzes online yeah. and, you know, basic teenage shit, whatever. But <laughs> Anissa wrote in the comment section how high her score was saying, officer, cuff me. I got the right answers. Like, this is not a right or wrong quiz. <laughs> no. <laughs> Also, you don't want to flaunt that. Come on. No, you don't. She watched another video on how to know if you're a sociopath. And on that one, she commented, LOL, 18, they're coming to take me away. Ha ha. It's like, oh my God, that phrase just reminds me of my mother. (laughs) She used to sing that song to me all all the time. Yeah. But in all intents and purposes, though, she could have just... She could have just said that she got all the answers right to make herself look like a badass online, too. So we don't know. And another one she watched, you can see a self-defense instructor explaining how to use your car keys to get away from a potential attacker. He tells the viewer to use the keys to strike into any soft tissue on the body, the eyes, the cheeks, into the throat, etc. And the last video presented was titled feeding my serva a live mouse for the first time this one showed a cat and a mouse in a bathtub and this cat just batters the mouse to death with its paws before eating it you as well as i know that this is just a fact of life as the serva owner says in the video it's natural for the cat to do this right especially being the type of cat it is yep but anissa commenting that she loved watching zeus the cat's name beating the mouse to death is a little bit cringy just a little bit. <laughs> Anissa's fourth and fifth grade teacher, Tom Haynes, sat down with an interviewer to discuss what Anissa used to be like in school when she was younger. He showed the interviewer the yearbook from when she was in his class and the autograph she left him saying, you're like a second dad to me. Aww. He felt that if she felt that strongly about it, he could have done something else. Which, you can't, honey. Like, I mean, you really, teachers can only do so much. Like, you do a great job, but there's just some things you can't touch. But and if she was actually a sociopath, she didn't mean it. Yeah. Hmm. He says that Anissa was one of the biggest outliers he had because she had no solid connection with any of the other 4th or 5th graders. She would cry once every few weeks about kids being mean to her. She wanted to be able to contain herself in front of the whole class, but sometimes she would just cry. The other kids were aware of her emotions, and she sometimes came in from lunch recess and cry how she didn't have any friends. He was happy that she had met Morgan and become friends with someone who shared her interests, but then it spiraled out of control from there. After her parents split in 2012, Anissa ended up going to a new school. One of her teachers there described her as very intelligent and stickler for the rules. She was a loner. She hated working with others. 
For example, when the teacher would call for a group assignment, Anissa would do something distracting, messing with papers or sharpening her pencils to prolong being able to have to pick a partner. Well, shit, I... <laughs> I did that too. I hated working in groups in school, mostly due to the fact that I ended up doing all the fucking work and the teachers didn't grade people individually back then. So when no one else in my group did jack shit, they just still got full credit and it always pissed me off. Wait, do they do they actually do it individually now, even when you're working in a group? Yeah. What? No, they do. I was going to say, I was going to say like it happened to me all the way up Suck through college. Yeah, no, you'd think adults would be more... Like, on that. Yeah, like, have more responsibility, but no, they don't. And that's what I mean, like... Accountability here, man. Yeah. Assholes. (laughs) Sorry. screwed. (laughs) Sorry for the little rant there, but I feel you, girl, at least on the loner part. I really do. Seriously. (laughs) Because that's just ridiculous. During her first few months at the new school, Anissa spent her time eating alone at lunch and sitting on the bus alone. She didn't make friends easily, and her fellow students thought she was odd, so they kept their distance or they picked on her so bad that their teachers had to sit them down and remind them not to bully people. Like, that fucking works! Oh my god, the flashbacks! Like, I can't even say nostalgia. I loathed middle school. I hated it because of that shit. Like, you can't just- I'm sorry, you cannot just sit down a bully in your class and be like- don't do it. It's not nice. They're not going to give a fuck. I never even bothered <laughs> reporting my middle school bullies because yeah. nothing was ever done about it. I just kind of either dealt with it, avoided them, or learned to get a backbone. Yeah. More towards the end of middle school. And even though Anissa was smart and followed the rules, the teacher said that she had a screw all of you attitude. I mean, can you blame her though? Honestly? No, the I way that If the kids are really treating her like that, like I don't blame her at all. Yeah. One afternoon, while she was riding the bus home, Morgan sat down next to her, and the two became inseparable. (laughs) (laughs) Angie, Morgan's mom, said that the two only met because they happened to ride the same bus. She was, however, at the time, so happy that Morgan had made a friend so close, someone else in the neighborhood. Both her parents were happy she had someone to play with. Now, Morgan was an outsider by choice. Bill even remembered one morning seeing Morgan walking to the bus stop wearing a Vulcan mask and it wasn't Halloween. (laughs) She was just like, fuck you, I'm going to be Spock today. (laughs) Just because I can. Morgan at school was a different story than Anissa. She had run into some disciplinary issues. It was reported that one day she ran around the playground barking like a dog and chasing her classmates. I mean, I've seen kids do that. Yeah, they're kids. Another time she was suspended for bringing a rubber mallet into the school. Another student saw it in her locker and reported her. Because yeah. why not? her homeroom teacher said that morgan seemed four years older than she really was and she was incredibly intelligent and astute Hmm. as stated earlier by anissa's teacher tom she now had a friend to share interests but in reality this was a toxic combination as far as their discoveries online with slenderman tom continued saying there was no better setup for bullied kids like no one in school likes you but here's this monster who will embrace you The worst time to be isolated is when your brain and body are begging for camaraderie, for kinship, which in adolescence is the hardest time to be alone. In the absence of social contact, the internet can appear as a peer in a way, or a peer group. Those two girls, in a tight-knit group of eight friends, I don't think is going to happen, because they wouldn't have 
only been talking to each other and they wouldn't have been relying so heavily from information from the internet. Hmm. Morgan and Anissa shared the feeling of loneliness and isolation that made them feel incapable of connecting with others their own age. The difference in the two girls also, though, was the fact that the third girl involved, the victim, Peyton Lutner, had known Morgan since kindergarten and had been best friends with her since the fourth grade. So this just makes it all the worse for what happened to that poor girl. Anissa was introduced to Peyton after she met Morgan in the sixth grade. They called Peyton Bella, by the way, because they that had been her nickname since kindergarten. The reason was in Peyton's class then, there were two Peytons. Yeah. So, it's not to confuse the teacher or anyone else, she just told the teacher and her classmates to call her by her middle name, Bella. Because she was just like, I don't want you to, like, not be able to tell the difference between the two of us, so just call me Bella. Anissa was the one that initially introduced Morgan to the Creepypasta website and the stories about Slenderman. When Morgan first heard about the cryptid, she was immediately shocked and told Anissa that she thinks she has been seeing him since she was five. (laughs) Oh, uh-oh. After Anissa told Morgan about the site, Morgan became obsessed. She started to send Peyton links to the story. She told her that Slenderman was stalking Peyton and would watch her through the curtains to her room every night when she was sleeping. So nice of her. Hmm. So Peyton was so scared of this that she would close the curtains to her room, close the door to her closet, and sleep facing away from the windows every night. At one point, Peyton told her mother the things that Morgan was saying to her and that she was scared. Peyton's mom did research and told her daughter that out of all the research she did, she couldn't find anything to prove that Slender Man was real and she shouldn't worry because Morgan was just trying to scare her, which I I can agree with that. Anissa had only met Peyton in the sixth grade, so all of this behavior between Peyton and Morgan really only started when Anissa came into the picture. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And Morgan had started pulling away from Peyton more and more when she met Anissa. Yeah. Peyton said that the girls weren't nice to her when they were together, especially Anissa. Anissa would say mean things, call Peyton names. She even physically assaulted Peyton a few times. And Anissa would claim that she acted the way that she did towards Peyton because she was hungry or tired. And later, when the two girls were alone, Anissa would apologize for what she had done. Peyton realized that Anissa was only mean to her when Morgan was around, almost as if she was trying to show off. And it just kept getting worse. The problem with Anissa introducing Morgan to the creepypasta site was that in Morgan's mental state, we will be getting to that later during the trial portion of the episode, it was like pouring water on a grease fire. Jesus Christ. Morgan believed everything she read on the site to be true oh no and in turn convinced anissa that all of the cryptids and stories specifically about Slenderman were all real oh mm-hmm. that is recipe for disaster yeah. right there one of anissa's former childhood friends maggie says she doesn't know where the concepts of Slenderman came from because anissa never talked about him before Unless she was constantly internet searching, she never showed Maggie anything bad or scary. Maggie says that Anissa is easily frightened, though, that maybe she did it because she wanted to be noticed. Because honestly, at her school, Maggie didn't know that she didn't have any friends. Anissa told her that she had lots of friends, that lots of guys liked her, and that she was accepted and had a great time at school. Well, <laughs> But she was constantly picked on. She never truly fit in. She was a follower. Maggie thinks that some kids are just 
big believers, and they can't help but to believe everything they hear. And thus began this vicious circle. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yay, teenagers! Now that we have a little background on the girls, auf das Verbrechen. On to the crime. Bill, Anissa's father, had said that there was going to be a slumber party the night before Morgan's 12th birthday. He knew that there was Morgan, Anissa, and a third girl, Peyton, that he nor his wife had met. But they were going to be at Morgan's house, so it didn't seem that much of an issue. He was going to grab Anissa, go pick up Morgan and Peyton, and drive them all to Skate World. Meanwhile, prior to this, Morgan had told Anissa that her parents let her have two friends over every year for her birthday, so that night would be the perfect time to kill Peyton. Anissa and Morgan exchanged multiple emails. They corresponded with each other all day long. They sent each other links to Slenderman-related content, and they even came up with code names in the email so that no one would know what they were talking about. Their parents and teachers, because they used their school emails to talk during the day. Wow. Yeah, they're smart. <laughs> they had nicknames for each other. Morgan called Anissa Scorpion because apparently she was aggressive at times. Ooh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Such a little badass. Get over here. And Anissa called Morgan Kitty because she had four cats and would sometimes act like a cat. Okay, then. Yeah, yeah. It gets, it gets so much harder. So much harder. The following are a few emails that the girls exchanged leading up to the day of the attempted murder. The first one was from Morgan to Anissa, reading, I'm hearing someone growing closer and closer to me in a creepy way. I'm hearing footsteps in the hall. I have to go. I heard someone whisper, you're next. On April 26, 2014, Anissa wrote to Morgan, saying... This is a new email I set up. Now we can talk openly about that thing. P.S. I'm sorry for lying. I was doing it for your sake. I don't want to become crazy because you were seeing something that I didn't. Morgan responded, You didn't tell me anything about lies you have told, but I would estimate you weren't telling the complete truth when you saw Kate or Slender out the bus window. Rough guess. If I were you, I would copy and paste anything important I sent to your old email and save it as a draft in your new one. Make sure not to leave any traces because once the said event happens, the school will search your email. Anissa responded, Well, I lied about some other things. Not Kate or Slender, but a few other things. And I did that because I didn't want you to feel insane because you saw something I didn't. Also, I deleted the emails you sent me before I read that. I figured the school would search my email, so I deleted everything. Morgan wrote back, It's fair. I lied to help you. If you weren't part of the plan, then your life wouldn't be so exciting. Whoa. Wow! Rude as fuck. Rude, bitch. It's fine. I already wrote everything down. Stop feeling like shit. It was hurtful when you did because it reminded me of what Bella and Rachel and the other girls who I have in the past betrayed me had done. But honestly, I used Vulcan mind tricks, so I didn't feel upset at all. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, oh my goodness. Just, you gotta remember that they're like 12. I know. Just Holy promise. Shit. Just promise not to fake anything from now on. That involves your stuttering and twitching that you keep up for about a minute every three weeks. Trust me, <laughs> I can tell the difference. Physical and mental disabilities are no joke. Sorry to be abrupt. Oh my god, these girls. Ow. My head. <laughs> Anissa responded, it's okay, I needed a wake-up call. <laughs> and by the way, I won't lie about anything unless in front of others. 
and I will not betray you. I have never done that to a friend, let alone someone who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. What? Okay. Wait. I you'll 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 understand in okay. a little bit. I swear to God, if you laugh or show any sign of a dirty mind, I will know, but I won't betray you, and I won't twitch unless I get a chill down my spine. <laughs> oh my god. They're so cringy. The last message that was ever found was written by Anissa on May 28th, two days before the attempt, and it read, This is my final wish to those who care. Do not grieve my absence, but remember me for who I was. I love and cherish you all and wouldn't do you harm. That sounds like a suicide it note. It does. But, okay. The next month, they exchanged more emails alluding to their plan. On May 23rd, a week before the sleepover, Anissa wrote to Morgan, My mom just said that. Just because I missed one effing little choir assignment, I might not be able to go. Morgan responded, I swear, if your mom says you can't come, I will literally crawl in your freaking window and add her to the list of bad people. Delete this email. <laughs> Obviously she didn't because they found it. <laughs> Morgan would later go on to say in the interrogation that they had actually been planning this since December. It was now May by then, so for six months they planned this, like I said before. Yeah. Morgan said that she didn't pick Peyton to be killed, that whoever Anissa was talking to did, that Anissa made it seem necessary, and so she believed her. Wait, so in other words, Anissa's apparently seeing something that Morgan isn't seeing. No, and they no, no. lied to each other about it's it? It's the other way around. So oh. it's Morgan seeing shit. And Anissa lied about it because Anissa didn't want Morgan to feel left out. But Morgan's seeing that Anissa's betraying her because she's pretending to see shit. So she thinks she's making fun of her like the other girls did. Oh. Yeah. That's very confusing. Thank you for straightening that out. Yeah, no, no. It's all good. Trust me. I had to read those emails like quite a handful of times before I was like, oh. Fucking wow. <laughs> In fact, one of the girl's former classmates during the trial testified that Anissa often spoke about Slenderman and that one day she told this girl that she had figured out how to become a proxy of Slenderman. When the girl asked how, Anissa replied, you have to kill one of your friends. And after a small pause, she said, don't worry, it's not you. <laughs> oh my God. Jesus Christ. <sighs> what the Oh fuck? my God. The original plan that they had drew up was to wait until bedtime, kill Peyton, tuck her into her sleeping bag to make it look like she was sleeping, and then leave to head out to the Slender Mansion in the middle of Nicolette State Park about a four-hour drive from where the girls lived. How the fuck were they planning to get there? Walking. Stop it. <laughs> The events that took place between May 29th and 30th were through communication between the girls. On Friday, May 30th, Morgan went to Anissa's house to pack a bag. The bag contained all the things they needed for their journey. After they packed, Morgan's dad picked them up and took them to Morgan's house, where Peyton was waiting. Then he took all three girls to Skate World. On Friday, Skate World had free pizza day specials, so the girls skated, ate pizza, and acted like normal 12-year-olds, having fun together, being goofy, and taking pictures. When they got back to the house, Angie, Morgan's mom, said that they were acting like normal little girls, running up and down the stairs, holding hands, and giggling. There was no indication that something was off. They didn't have anything to worry about. Wow, these girls are fucking scary. The girls went down to the basement and played together on their tablets. Morgan was playing The Sims. At one point, Morgan let the other two girls know that she planned on locking her Sims family in their house, starving them, and then setting their house on fire. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I can't even get mad about that because like I can't I, either. I I've done that a few times myself. I like coming up with more creative ways to kill my sins. <laughs> Yeah, and they took away all those stupid things because you could take the ladder out of the pool now, and it doesn't fucking matter anymore. They'll just climb out of the side of the pool. I think they were tired <laughs> of people fucking murdering all of the Sims. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're psychopaths. I mean, <laughs> oh my god. Probably not. Yeah, but Morgan often said weird, morbid things like this, especially since her obsession with the creepy bosses. So Peyton didn't think too much of it. I mean, yeah. If you're it's... saying shit like that all the time. Really, none of this strikes me as, like, out of the norm other than the correspondences back and forth planning the actual murder. Bedtime rolled around and Morgan decided that she couldn't go through with it that night. They would wait for the next day and go with their plan B. Morgan and Anissa woke up before Peyton and went downstairs to do online quizzes together. Peyton woke up and joined them, then was taken aback when Morgan suddenly asked her, what would you do if someone walked up to you and just started stabbing you? Then went back to acting normal when Peyton didn't respond. Literally, she said that to her. I I have no words. Um, I'd be like, I just fucking woke up. I mean, How like, do you start a conversation all, with I just this? woke up. Second of all, can I go home now? Yeah. <laughs> How about no? I don't think I want to be here anymore. <laughs> the girls had strawberries and donuts for breakfast and afterwards asked Morgan's mom if they could go to the park. Angie didn't really like Morgan going to the park by herself, but she was with two other friends. It was still the morning, and it wasn't that far from where they lived, so she told them to go ahead. Again, normal. Yeah. Morgan told her mom that she loved her, and then they left. Morgan later told Detective Casey in the interrogation after the arrest that she had grabbed a knife from her kitchen prior to them leaving. Anissa said she didn't know where Morgan kept her knives, but that she knew Morgan had showed it to her on the way to the park because Morgan lifted her jacket when Peyton wasn't looking and showed her the handle of the knife. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Anissa started thinking, dear God, this is really happening. <sighs> Anissa said the thing that made her nervous the most of all was that she was going to see a dead person because the last time she saw one was at her uncle's funeral. Like, no, not, not about I'm about to like fucking commit murder. It's just there's going to be a dead body. Oh, man. <laughs> the girls got to the park and played on the playground for a while, then went into the bathroom. Detective Casey asked Morgan if they thought about stabbing her there, and she said, Anissa did. I didn't think it would work. She wasn't sure what the plan was from there, because Anissa had come up with several plans, so it was hard to keep track. Oh, great. Anissa said in her interrogation that she thought that the bathroom was a good idea to do it because the floor had a drain for the blood to go down. Jesus Christ, tiny Satan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you're not wrong. Then they were going to sit Peyton on one of the toilets, lock the stall, and leave for the mansion. From what she had read on Creepypasta Wiki... It was easier to kill people if they were asleep or unconscious. She said it was because, quote, because when you look into a person's eyes, you can see yourself and you don't want to be killing yourself. So she asked Peyton to go to sleep. Oh. <laughs> Peyton, of course, said she didn't want to go to sleep. Yeah, why would she? <laughs> so she just didn't sit there with her eyes closed. And then Anissa hit Peyton on the front of the head so hard and knocked her back into the concrete wall behind her. Yeah, Anissa actually asked Peyton to go to sleep so they could kill her in the bathroom and <laughs> said that the one thing she couldn't deal with was screaming because she doesn't like it. 
Oh my god. Then Morgan handed her the knife and said, I thought you agreed that we were going to do this. And of course, Peyton didn't understand what was going on and was rightfully horrified. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan then said, I can't do this. I'm too scared. And then proceeded to freak the fuck out. She kept telling Anissa, you have to. Then Anissa tried to calm her down by hugging her and petting her like a cat. And now they had to fall into plan C. After Morgan calmed down, the two girls told Peyton that they wanted to play a game, hide and seek. And at first, Peyton was like, oh, hell no, y'all are crazy. <laughs> but somehow, they managed to get her to follow them into the woods. Anissa did tell her that she could pick whatever game she wanted after hide and seek, so I guess that worked. I mean, again, they're 12. Yeah. Anissa said to the detective later, quote, she was going to hide in one place. I was going to hide in another. Then Morgan and I were going to be like lionesses chasing down a zebra. This girl is freaking my shit out. Like, she is so tweaked. Uh, it's the fact that she's so young and she's talking like this. It's just, no. I've always been one of those where I am thoroughly freaked out by little kids in horror movies and mm -hmm. shit but jesus it feels like one of those curated fucking horror movies about a little shit yeah <laughs> oh my god it's not it's a real live little girl yeah who's just this conniving crazy asshole that's why it makes it creepier mm -hmm. detective casey asked morgan why they went into the woods she responded because we knew what we had to do we lied to her and tricked her when he followed up with, how did you get her to follow you into the woods? She said, we told her we were going to go bird watching. People who trust you are very gullible. Wow. Yeah, again, so a couple of tiny Satans here. Fucking geez. Fuck. Peyton said that Anissa just kept pulling her deeper and deeper into the woods. Morgan said that once the two of them were out of sight, she went to look for them. That they hid and she found them. Morgan handed the knife to Anissa again and said, I can't do it. You know where all the soft spots are. Anissa handed it back and said, you do it. Go ballistic. Go crazy. Make sure she's down. Then Morgan responded, I'm not doing it until you tell me to. Anissa started walking away. And when she was about five feet from them, she turned and shouted now and turned her back on them again. Morgan looked at Peyton started to walk slowly towards her with the knife, smiled and said, don't be afraid, I'm only a little kitty cat. Oh my and God. then tackled her to the ground. She sat on top of Peyton's legs, leaned down right next to her ear and whispered, I'm sorry, and then proceeded to stab her best friend 19 times in her arms, legs, and torso with the five-inch blade. Holy fucking shit. Yeah, this was not like a little paring knife. This was a like big fucking knife. Wow. That she had. Morgan told Detective Casey that she didn't know what she had done. That Bullshit. It, <laughs> that it sort of just happened. Bullshit. And it didn't feel like anything. It felt like air and then made stabbing motions. What? what? Like, I know you guys can't see this, but it's just, she was sitting there in the interrogation chair, like pretending to stab the air going, it was like this. I just felt like air. Like, it's, it's terrifying. Ugh. Yeah. She said that the last thing Peyton said to her before being stabbed was, I trusted you. Then I hate you. Anissa said that she just lied there, screaming in agony the whole time. When Morgan was done, Peyton was still conscious, and she managed to get to her feet with blood pouring down all over her, and she kept repeating in whispers over and over, crying, I can't see. Oh my god. Like, yeah, it's making me want to cry. This poor, poor girl. 
Peyton started walking towards the road and this is said at that point I kind of moved her away from the road and then her blood got on me and then on my shirt. Anissa had redirected her away from the road because she didn't want anyone to see. Anissa told her to lie down and be quiet that she'd bleed slower. That her and Morgan were going to get help and then they left her there. What the fuck? Yeah, she was just like, if you lie down and be quiet, you'll bleed slower. So you won't die as fast. But we're going to get help. You're fine. And then just fucking left her there. On their way to Nicolette Park, Anissa said that she had had enough of all this and she wanted to call her mom and go home. Morgan told her that if she did that, she would spend her life in prison, either that or be executed. Jesus. So Anissa had a total nervous breakdown and blamed Morgan for everything, screaming at her, you stabbed her, you wanted to do this. Morgan, in return, who barely cried, just let go and started wailing, saying, Slender, if you're listening, please help us. And of course, nothing happened. So they just continued. Meanwhile, back at the woods, Peyton managed to crawl her way up the road in an attempt to get help. Luckily, the cyclist, Greg Steinberg, the one who found her, chose that day of all days to ignore the sign at the entrance that read that the bike path was closed. He saw her collapse half in, half out of the road and called the police. And that 911 call was horrible to hear. We have a link down in the show notes if you want to give it a listen. Greg stayed with her until the paramedics arrived, trying to apply pressure to her wounds and telling her that everything was going to be okay. She was rushed to the hospital and had to go into surgery immediately. The 19 stab wounds had punctured her liver, pancreas, stomach, and her heart, missing the main artery, according to the surgeon, by a literal millimeter. He said that the blade had cut the outer lining of the major artery to the heart and stopped at the wall. Had it not, even if it nicked the artery, Peyton would have suffered a heart attack and died within a minute or two. Holy shit. Yeah. After the surgery, she couldn't talk. The first message she was able to write to her mother said, I want to go home. When can I go home? Peyton said that she was scared and all she could remember from the incident was the pain. She said that she mustered the strength to crawl out of the woods after because she simply wanted to live. Wow. Yeah. Morgan and Anissa were picked up a few hours after Peyton was brought into the hospital. An officer found them walking along I-94 and brought them to the station in Waukesha County. Morgan told the officer that she was scared, what she was scared of, and that he would think they were crazy. He told her that he didn't think anyone was crazy because obviously he just wanted to get them the fuck in the car because they're covered in blood. Yeah. They had blood-covered clothes and a backpack that contained a change of clothes, granola bars, bottles of water, the knife, and a picture of Anissa's family because she wanted to remember what they looked like after leaving Wakusha forever. Whoa. When the girls were first brought in, they were separated and put into interrogation rooms. Morgan curled up in her chair and just kept saying, I didn't want to do this, but also stated that she was afraid what would happen if she didn't. The first words out of Anissa's mouth were, do you know how far we walked? Because I'm not really athletic and don't know how far that would be. Oh my god. That's the first thing she had to say. Anissa was like seriously just straight up psychopath. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Sociopath. A little bit of both, I guess. <laughs> the girls were read their rights and the police did not inform them to have their parents present because that wasn't an option. They also did not get offered a phone call. Unfortunately, in the state of Wisconsin, any minor down to the age of 10 is not required to have a parent present during an interview nor interrogation. They can also be tried as adults depending on the severity of the crime. Well, shit. Anissa told the detective that she wanted to prove that Slenderman existed and would do it by killing somebody. 
Morgan said that her family would be in danger if they didn't. The two tried to kill their friend for the sole purpose of pleasing this imaginary internet legend. When she was asked about Morgan telling her that the bad things would happen to her family and loved ones if she believed that, she said, well, yeah, because he's Slenderman and can be anywhere from six feet to 14 feet tall. He can, like, explode these tendrils from his back and strangle his victims. <laughs> when asked if they talked about the stabbing prior to the event, Morgan stated that Anissa told her they had to do that or Slenderman would kill their families. She said that it was a man that she didn't know, but Anissa knew him. She was then asked if she had ever met, to which she replied, Not exactly. He just watches you. He can read minds and has teleportation skills. She also stated that she had been seeing him in her dreams frequently. These girls were basically throwing each other under the bus. A typical pointing the finger at anyone but yourself scenario. That's so just sad. Yeah. The whole thing. Especially since one of the first things that Morgan asked the detective was what happened to Bella Detective Casey didn't know who she was talking about and asked if Bella was her friend, referring to Anissa, and Morgan was like, no, not Anissa. She was the one who got stabbed <laughs> while creepily smiling. And sh shit you not, she said it just like that. Whoa. <laughs> then asked if Bella was dead. Detective Casey said he didn't know, but she had been taken to the hospital. Morgan perked her head up and looked shocked, then just casually laid her head back down on the chair and was like, oh, I was just wondering. Like it didn't phase her. <sighs> she then proceeded to tell him that they both stabbed Peyton and that she believed that Anissa stabbed her first. Then she put the knife into Morgan's hand again and told her to do it. She told Detective Casey that they told Peyton they were going to get help. She said, quote, I didn't have anything to do with the lying, though. That was all Anissa. That is the least of your worries here. <laughs> yeah, least <laughs> of them. Morgan was speaking in an even emotionless almost articulate way during her interrogation. She said, we're here because we were careless. I knew that this would happen. I knew we'd get in trouble. When asked what they were trying to do, she answered, kill her. I might as well just say it. We were trying to kill her. She asked him if it was illegal to stab someone in self-defense. He responded by asking her if that's what she thought happened. And she was just like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. She, she said she knew they were there because they tried to run off after hurting Bella and said the reason that they didn't kill her the night before was because she wanted to give Bella one more day. <sighs> that she wanted to see if they could put it off forever, but it just didn't work out like that. That's no, no. Yeah. No, you're making my brain hurt. <laughs> she then changed her tone and asked the detective, "Are you going to put me in prison and I'm going to rot and die?" He told her that they were going to have someone talk to her and figure out what the best circumstance would be for her. And she responded with, please don't cut my head off. <laughs> um, what? She kept speaking in this childlike, innocent way, but with a flat effect. When she was asked if she was sure that Anissa stabbed Peyton, she said, yeah, not really. It's sort of confusing. I've been trying to block out her screams all day. But she said it as if they're more annoying then upsetting. Ugh. She was asked if she felt bad about stabbing one of her best friends. She said, I thought about it, but then I thought remorse would get me nowhere. It's easier to live without regrets. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. In general, Morgan didn't appear to be upset at all, where Anissa was clearly shaken and at times crying, worrying about her parents being scared by this whole ordeal. Morgan shows not one bit of emotion or feeling. And the times the detective was not in the room, she occupied herself with singing out loud or dancing. Wow. She was like spinning around like a ballerina and shit. It was creepy. 
Later during the trial, Detective Casey even commented on her lack of regret that she showed no emotion at all. The only shred that she did show was when she admitted, quote, truth be told, I wanted to be locked up so that I couldn't hurt her, but I really didn't want to make Anissa mad. It's hard enough to make friends. I don't want to lose them over something like this. I mean, you're going to lose one when you stab her 19 times. Yeah, just maybe. This is where it's confusing to me because she shows no emotion as if it doesn't bother her and then turns around asking questions about what's going to happen because she knows what she did was wrong. So she's not completely incompetent, but she told the detective that it had to be done because the man said so and that Slenderman had been visiting her since she was three years old. Wow, it goes further back every time. She mentions that she had seen Slenderman in her dreams, but if he's stalking you, that's where you can see him, where no one else does. She describes him as a tall, faceless man that preys on children. She says she knows he's everywhere because she's read so many things about him. Ugh. Morgan believed that she could telepathically communicate with Slenderman, and that once the communication began, she had to do what it was that he demanded, that if she didn't, neither her nor her family would be safe. In fact, even now, when someone suggests that he is not real, she becomes defiant and says that she knows it's true because you can't prove that it's untrue, so therefore it's true. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Meanwhile, as I mentioned earlier about the two girls throwing each other under the bus, Anissa was trying to convince Detective Michelle Gersoni that Morgan was just tapped. I mean, she is. You're not wrong. <laughs> Initially, when the detective left the room to get Anissa a glass of water, she shot up out of her chair to make it a point to tell Detective Drusoni that Morgan heard voices so she seemed crazy to them. She's just like, Morgan hears voices, by the way. Can I have some water? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> way to throw that in there. <laughs> Smooth. She told Trusoni that Slenderman came from the creepypasta wiki, that he targets children the most. So she was really scared knowing that he could easily kill her family in like three seconds. <sighs> she continued saying that Slenderman had proxies or servants, as people would call them. She said that Morgan was the one who said that they should be proxies, that Anissa had asked her how they could do that. And Morgan answered, we have to kill Bella. So now she's saying that it's all that Morgan. Is, yeah, that's all Morgan. She thought Morgan said that because they had to prove themselves worthy of him. She told Detective Trusoni that if they were a proxy, you could live in Slender Mansion, where all the creepypasta people lived. And that this mansion was in the middle of Nicolette Park. How the fuck? Mm -hmm. No, no, it was only specifically there. Where in did Wisconsin? We, where did we get this information from? <laughs> Who told you, kids? Anissa perked up at this point and said that she wanted to prove all of the skeptics wrong. She truly believed that they had to kill someone for real to become his proxy. She expressed excitement and surprise to Morgan when she was told these things, and looked forward to living in this mansion with all the characters they had read about. You mean all of those crazy things that want to kill people? Yep. You want to live with those guys. Oh, yep. hey. She talked about another cryptid from the site, Jeff the Killer, and said they had done so much research on him to find out that it was a true story. So if Jeff was real, then so was Slenderman, because there was no way he wasn't with all the research they had done to prove it. But she, in turn, also told the detective that as far as proxies went, she didn't know much about them other than what she read on the internet. But if they were one, they didn't have a choice. So this needed to be done. And mind you, for those listening, I, it's, I don't know if you know this already. I'm sure you probably do. Jeff the Killer is not fucking real. Neither is any of the people on Creepypasta. No. <laughs> She said, quote, part of me always wanted this to fail. The bad part of me wanted her to die, but the good part of me wanted her to live. Okay. To me, that sounds like a pretty clear-cut choice, though. 
She also believes that none of this would have happened if she had never shown Morgan the creepy pasta site. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, who fucking knows this point? They might have just been Anissa going nuts. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. It's like if she never introduced it to her and they... And it might have taken her a few more years to fucking show the crazy shit. Yeah, because if Morgan and Peyton were the ones who were friends, they'd known each other their whole lives, and Anissa was kind of just an afterthought until she was like, hey, you should push Bella away because I'm your bestie now. Yeah. The fuck? So, based on this, the court found that this was a violent, premeditated offense, a conscious decision that they made to let the victim die. They had to make sure that the serious offense was dealt with on a serious basis that offered protection for everyone, so they ordered that the girls were to be detained under adult jurisdiction. Peyton said that after the fact, she thought Morgan should go to jail for the rest of her life. And that Anissa should go to jail too, but not as long because she didn't stab her. She just stood there and watched. (sighs) When the girls were being held, the police went to work. They searched the girls' lockers, rooms, interviewed classmates, their parents, anything that might help or hinder their defense. According to Angie, Morgan's mother, Morgan was living in this whole separate world inside her head that neither her nor her husband knew about. She said... It's hard for kids because they have very little concept of differentiating reality from fantasy to begin with. So as parents, it's hard to know where to draw the line. Where does it become abnormal? So looking back, there may have been some signs that would put everything into retrospect. I mean, again, it's a lot of normal things that they were presenting and all the crazy shit was very well hidden. Yeah. Like... Those girls did a lot to make sure nobody from the outside saw what was happening. And they did a really good job acting like everything was fucking normal. And now even still, their parents are getting shit on because of what they did. It was not their parents' fault. Some people are just born psycho. There's some things that I'm going to bring up too that I had a little bit of a tiff with just because obvious mental reasons yeah we'll see where we get from that but from the information we've heard so far yeah so far anyway about the parents like everything seemed extremely normal diana and robert neeson morgan's grandparents even said that it was hard to imagine that she was having problems that it's hard to process because none of them saw this coming First off, I know you want to see your kids as these perfect little beings that live in a world where no bad thing can touch them, but honestly, based on what the police found and given her mental diagnosis, how the fuck could they not? And after the search of the lockers, the police found some pretty disturbing things in the girls' notebooks, but really about 95% of the disturbing things were found in Morgan's notebooks, including the list of items they needed to go on their journey to the mansion, which included pepper spray for Jeff the Killer, map of the forest, a camera, spray bottle for Ben, cheesecake for Masky and Hoodie, the will to live, (laughs) and weapons, kitchen knife, and flashlights. The will to live. I love how she added that. The will to live and flashlights. (laughs) What? (laughs) There was also a drawing of Slenderman with the words, you are a strange child, you will be of my use, written on it. There were other drawings with Slenderman's symbol, which is a circle with an X through it, with the words, he cannot be harmed. Another one of a blank face and the circle symbols where the eye should be, with the words, he still sees you. The last drawing featured an anime-style cat girl holding a scythe, standing on top of another anime girl with a skull and crossbones over her head. The cat girl is saying, I love killing people. Whoa. (laughs) In Morgan's room were fucked up Barbie dolls. Some had their arms or legs cut off. 
Others had red marks slashed into them as if she was practicing. Okay. This, this is what I mean. Where did she hide them well enough that the parents were like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, how did that go onto the radar? Yeah. Leading up to the trial, the judge, Michael O'Brien, ordered that Anissa would have no contact with the internet, also no contact with the co-defendant. Morgan had no access to the outdoors, not even a window to look out. Morgan said that it didn't bother her because she didn't want to go outside anymore anyway. Huh, what? This being done after the girls talking about no matter what happened, they would always be together. Of course, the, the I, I know they're kids, so they're not going to understand that the court's just going to be like, yeah, you two are not yeah, no. going to be hanging out anymore. <laughs> you two need to be separated. Yeah. You're a problem. <laughs> their parents remained hopeful while grieving for the loss of their daughters and for the pain that was inflicted on Peyton and her family. They were moved to the Washington County Jail and permitted by the judge to visit their families twice a month, divided by glass, observed, and recorded. Angie expressed how it broke her heart every time she had to leave a visit with her daughter that she remained hopeful that the next time she visited, she would be able to bring Morgan home. That, that's not happening, honey. I'm so sorry. Mm, no. On the other end of the spectrum, Bill, Anissa's dad, talked about how he left her room alone. No one was allowed to go in there except him, and he cleans and changes the bedding once a week so it would be ready for her when she came home. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is this is the denial, unfortunately, that... Yeah. yeah. He also expressed how angry he was about the whole situation. His daughter was not the one who had to spend seven days in the hospital, so if he's mad as hell, then Peyton's family had every right to be just as, if not more mad... He said that they could slam the door in his face or punch him in the face or knock him on his ass and they would be justified in doing so. Wow. Which he that's was really hard on himself about it. Yeah. Shit. This whole ordeal is based around a case where two young girls took things way too far as far as believing in stories that with enough digging you can find out they're completely fake, albeit scary, but fake. Parental blocks, people. Come on. During their pre-incarceration, they met a boy named Tyler who came forward to express how he observed the girls and how far gone they were. He said, people believe a lot of far-fetched things are real, like the Loch Ness Monster or the Boogeyman. I can't prove whether things like Slenderman are real or fake, but I believe that they truly believe he is real. Which, that's the hard thing to deal with, because you have thousands of people out there that you yourself cannot believe in something, but you can tell that they wholeheartedly... Yeah. Are like, no, this is fucking real. They were held for seven months before the trial would start. In that time, all juvenile resources that were available to the other kids in jail were not available to them. They did not receive therapy. They didn't get a social worker. And most significantly, mental health resources were withheld. I mean, because they need to be evaluated with that trial. They were evaluated, and the results that the psychiatrist got from the girls were staggering as far as shedding light and making a case more damning towards them. Dr. Michael Coldwell, the psychologist who evaluated Anissa, said that for her diagnosis, she had the predisposed characteristics that made her susceptible to delusional disorder, a diminished ability to determine what's real and what's not real. A lot of people have varying degrees of this. Adults may have eccentric or spiritual beliefs or conspiratorial beliefs and live out their lives with no problems at all. He'd done all the research on early stages of psychopathic personalities and adolescents over the last 20 years. And based on his observations and research, Anissa showed no signs of being a psychopath or a sociopath. She just had a learning disability. What? That is what they observed with her, is that she just had a learning disability. There was nothing else wrong with that girl. And she still acted like this and did all this shit. 
Dr. Kenneth Casimir, the psychiatrist that evaluated Morgan, said that the final diagnosis in both the psychological report and his personal report was schizophrenia, oppositional deviant disorder, and mild intermittent bronchial asthma. (laughs) Yeah, just throwing that last one in there. Yeah, she got asthma too. (laughs) Schizophrenia is one of the most serious and studied mental disorders. About 1% of the population will succumb to it. It is a psychiatric illness through a combination of genetic predisposition and stress placed upon a person to begin manifesting symptoms. Patients lose track of reality in a number of ways. One would be hallucinations, one could hear voices, one could see visions, and another could see things crawling on them. Delusions, on the other hand, don't have to do with sensing something. They have to do with thought. So, for example, believing that Slender Man is real is a delusion. Saying that you saw Slender Man is a visual hallucination. Right. Angie said that she recalled Morgan having hallucinations as early as three Morgan would see ghosts at night that would bite her and pull her hair, but for the most part, Angie understood that they were friendly too. Morgan said that she even tried to tell her parents about it once, and then they just told her to go back to bed, but Angie had no recollection of that happening. She asked, Honestly, how often do kids say things like, There's a monster in my closet or under my bed, simply because they don't want to go to bed? (laughs) She said it's hard because she hasn't been able to discuss these things with Morgan because she's been incarcerated for the entire time that Angie's known she's had these symptoms. Morgan expressed the ability to see or hear things that others are not able to. Dr. Brooke Lundbum, another psychologist, said that Morgan talked about seeing unicorns. (laughs) At one point, Morgan digressed into a fairly rambling discussion about a student in her class being a pegasus. Hmm. Dr. Deborah Collins, another psychologist, said that when she saw Morgan, Morgan said that Snape had kept her up until 3 a.m. the previous night. Like like Severus Snape? Yes, like Severus Snape. 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 Severus Snape. Dumbledore! (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't get that reference, you're too young. You shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Moving on. (laughs) She also said that she's not only heard things, but as early as three, she's had some sensory perceptional distortions. Ones where she might see a person change slightly or see colors. So Morgan herself was fully aware that she had these issues. She remembers when they started and she tried to tell her parents about it, but they were just like, oh, no, she's just a normal kid. I mean, with how she says things and how often she lies about little things, I wouldn't be surprised if as a parent you're like, no, she's just probably making some shit up. Oh, but here's the kicker. When Morgan's parents heard of the official diagnosis of their daughter, they wanted to go to the jail to tell her themselves because it might have lightened her a little to know that her father suffered from the same illness. Her father has schizophrenia. Hmm. Nice going. Oh, there's nothing wrong with her. She's just whimsical. First off, let me tell you that your definition and my definition of whimsical are vastly different, men. Secondly, it is a genetic disorder. You didn't stop and think, hmm, our daughter is saying that she's seeing ghosts that bites her and the walls are bleeding colors. Yeah, that's another thing that happened to her. Maybe you should get her checked out. That's extremely disappointing. Mm -hmm. That little tidbit right there just fucking shattered my perception of her parents. That's why I said what I said. I get it now. Up until then, it seemed fine. But knowing that is just what the fuck is wrong with you. bastards. While growing up, Morgan experienced many hallucinations, such as ghosts, colors melting down the walls, and imaginary friends. One named Maggie and the other Sev. 
One hallucination that occurred often was of a man named It, whose body was the color of smoke and ink that stood behind her mirrors or shifted around corners similar to that of Slenderman. Hmm. So she could have been confusing the two. Yeah. No wonder she thought he was real. And again, I iterate, don't be a fucking ignoramus. Get her checked the fuck out. After the initial arrest, like they knew mind about you, all of those things. Yeah, they knew about all of this, like all the things that she was saying. She would come to them and go, "I'm seeing this, mom. Mm. I'm, you know, yeah." And her dad had has schizophrenia, but they were like, "No, she's just pretending. She's just a normal kid." So I don't know if it was a huge thing of a denial that they were like, "I don't want my daughter to have schizophrenia." I mean, it's got to be at that point. But at the same time, if it, there's even the slightest chance, yeah, no, go and get her tested because especially if it's a genetic thing and her father has it, there's a chance she has it, which she obviously does. After the initial arrest, mind you, Angie said that Morgan became floridly psychotic. The COs in the jail said that they witnessed her talking to herself often, pretending to be a cat, and keeping ants as pets. She had continual conversations with Slenderman and others like Snape. Days before the trial, when the girls found out that they were being charged as adults, mind you, their lawyers petitioned constantly that they should be tried as juveniles but were constantly shot down, Anissa took a deal offered to her by the prosecution. She pled guilty to the lesser charge of intentional attempted second-degree homicide versus the attempted first degree that they were initially charged with, but she still had to go to the trial to determine whether she would spend her sentence in a prison or a mental institution. And the girls were facing up to 65 years. Jesus. Anissa's defense team tried to prove that she'd been led along by Morgan, and together they lived with a shared delusion. The defense painted a picture of a young girl who was struggling. She had attended meetings of a group of kids at school whose parents had also been divorced. Her teachers testified that she was struggling and at times seemed very sad and she didn't have a lot of friends at school because of her trouble relating to them. But when Bill took the stand, he didn't really help the defense's case for his daughter. He told the court that he's never known his daughter be struggling with depression. He also said that she'd never seen things that weren't there. He said there'd only been one incident when she was about 10. They had put her to bed and she screamed for her parents to come in because she saw something. That there was a pair of red eyes looking out at her from in the closet. So they came in, turned on the lights, showed her that there was nothing in her closet, and the rest of the night passed without incident. But he didn't consider that to be a delusion by any means. He just thought that it was a young girl who was afraid of the dark and it never happened again. Yep, that seems fairly normal. Versus yeah. Morgan, who's constantly like, Mommy, the walls are bleeding and goats are biting me. Yeah, no. <laughs> it was also stated that Bill's ex-wife, the mother of his two other children, had recently passed away from cancer, and Bill had been distracted by helping his other children grieve the loss of their mother. And so he'd let Anissa slip under the radar. Anissa had been sad, and the adults in her life were wrapped up in their own personal stuff, probably too distracted to notice what was going on with her. I can see why he was so hard on himself. That fucking sucks. Until the ruling was made, throughout the duration of the trial, Judge O'Brien ordered that no pictures were to be taken of the girls' faces, so a lot of the footage captured was depicted waist down or of their feet under the table. So yeah. They're minors, so you can't do that. During the trial, the defense focused on preparing Morgan for each day she would be at the trial more than they focused on her mental health. In the fall of 2014, she was moved to the Winnebago Mental State Health Institute to determine if she was competent enough to stand trial. They diagnosed her in October of 2014, and nearly half a year later, she was finally found competent enough. 
a handful of psychologists and officers took the stand and talked about their experiences and observations of Morgan's during her stay in the jail. Officer Nicole Simon stated that her cell seemed disorganized. Morgan had papers scattered all around the floor. Nicole had told her to clean the papers, but Morgan told her that she liked them there because it made it feel less empty. This statement makes it all the worse concerning her condition, of course. Angie had said that at one point when she calls Morgan on the phone, she sometimes asked her what she wants to watch on TV that night, and Morgan tells her that it depended on whose turn it was to decide, and she was in a cell by herself. Donna Joan Bennett, a social worker, told the court that in relation to the drawings, Morgan said, See my friends? None of these things are dangerous. They can't disappear. They're important to me. <laughs> okay. Dr. Kenneth Robbins, a psychiatrist, took the stand and stated that Morgan had no concerns as to whether or not she gets along in, in a prison sentence, because wherever she is, she will Vulcan mind control herself to believe whatever she likes. And so, even under stressful circumstances, she doesn't feel stressed because of those powers she supposedly possessed. Ugh. He mentioned that Morgan made sure that her primary relationship was with Slenderman. She felt like if she said the wrong thing, she would somehow upset Slenderman and not only hers, but her family's life would be in danger. The problem is, in this case, is that when a child gets schizophrenia, they almost immediately display negative and cognitive symptoms. What's unique about Morgan's circumstance is a severe course is also predictable. In December 2014, Morgan was given some antipsychotic meds, which later allowed her to feel remorse. Oh, wow. Because it got her back on yeah. the regular level. On March 23rd, 2016, Morgan was sent back to jail with a medication. This only made her deterioration more rapid. And after a suicide attempt, she was sent back to Winnebago, while Anissa remained in custody at the county jail for juveniles. The reason for the attempt, by the way, was that Morgan felt she was getting the slender sickness due to slender radiation. What? She's, yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier, the whole, like, coughing up and shit. Ugh. She said that it would present itself in coughing fits, nosebleeds, coughing up blood, vomiting, paranoia, all as a result of being stalked by the Slender Man or by having a run-in with him. So apparently he gives off radiation that makes you sick. So she wanted not to be sick anymore. What the fuck? The Wisconsin Court of Appeals upheld the judge's decision, and the girls were tried in adult court in 2017. The girls were eventually found not guilty due to mental disease or defect and committed to mental health institutions for sentences of 25 years to life and 40 years to life, respectively. That's a lot less than what they were looking at, so there's that. But, mm, I don't know, man. I don't know. In 2017, Anissa was sentenced to 25 years under the care of the state's mental health department. The jury felt that she should not be held criminally responsible for her actions because she was mentally ill at the time. Bullshit. Morgan was given the 40 years at another mental health facility where she continues to be held and is voluntarily taking medication to help with her schizophrenia. I mean, I'm glad that she's voluntarily doing these things. Mm. However, Jesus Christ. In March 2018, Anissa petitioned the court saying that she had exhausted her treatment options. Judge Boren ruled in July of that year that she no longer posed a threat. He signed off on a conditional release plan before ordering the facility to release her. After her release, she was to live with her father, continue to receive psychiatric care, and submit to round-the-clock GPS monitoring. She cannot have any contact with Peyton or her family, can't possess any weapons, and can't use social media. The Department of Corrections also limited her internet use, and she will continue to be monitored until she is 37 years old. So how old is she now? So she's 20 years old now. Okay. So for another 17 years, she's going to be monitored. 
That's fair. Peyton's parents, of course, were wary of her release. They were pissed at the ruling and thought she should have served more time in the hospital. They said they were reasonably comfortable with the conditions, but that Peyton's safety and the community's safety must come first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They thought that the girls were dangerous and should have been treated as such. They wrote a letter to the judge that determined their sentences. They wanted it to be remembered who the real victim was, their daughter. The letter read... There was only one little girl that was stabbed 19 times, brutally. In many ways, Peyton is doing very well. She gets great grades at school. She has a lot of friends. She's taking a number of advanced placement classes, and in that regard, she's doing very well. Having said that, the trauma of that horrific, premeditated, attempted murder will stay with her forever. They say your life can change in an instant. For us, that instant was the morning of May 31st, 2014, when our daughter Peyton was brutally stabbed 19 times by two people she trusted, people she believed were her friends. The trauma of that day that has defined our lives for the past three and a half years and continues to remind us how one event can change everything you believe to be true. The 19 stab wounds that Peyton endured that day left 19 very visible scars on her arms, her legs, her hip, her torso, and her chest. The nearly six-hour surgery and other medical treatments to repair her heart, diaphragm, liver, stomach, and pancreas left six more scars. Two of these scars span from just below her neck to just below her belly button. They are still red and angry more than three years later. They tingle and ache and remind her of their presence every day. Things that should be a fun experience for a mother and daughter have become mired with reminders of her attack. Shopping for homecoming dresses leaves only a few options because far too many dresses will show off her scars. Beach vacations are harsh reminders that swimsuits aren't made for girls with 25 scars. But Peyton's wounds are far beyond physical. The emotional trauma that she endured will remain with her for a very long time. It will fade and feel less intense as the years progress, but it will always be there, menacing in the back of her mind, reminding her to not trust too deeply or love unconditionally, because the last time she did, she nearly died. For months after the attack, Peyton would only speak to me. She slept in my bed partially because she needed help getting in and out of bed, but mostly because she was afraid to sleep in her own room. She wouldn't go to the basement because the last time Morgan was at our house, the basement rec room was where they played and slept. When she finally moved back into her bedroom, she refused to unlock the windows or open the curtains. She slept with scissors under her pillow. She couldn't sleep unless I was in the room next to her, and I could respond with three knocks on her wall with three knocks on mine, signifying, I love you, you're safe, I'm here. If I happened to be gone for the evening, she wouldn't go to sleep until I got home. Outwardly, Peyton seemed to recover remarkably fast. She went to sleepovers, made new friends, started 7th grade on time, and in the same school she had been in the year before. She went on cross-country trips to Hilton Head in Rhode Island with her friends, and international trips to Canada with her French class. But she was different. She was more reserved and more cautious. She held everyone at arm's length and never let anyone get too close. Our marriage was drastically affected as well. Everyone copes differently with trauma and loss. We knew that going into this, but we can never seem to get on the same page, which made it harder to come together in the times when we really needed each other. What felt like never-ending trips to the courthouse, hearings, media requests, and doctor and therapy appointments created a cavern between the two of us. As the years dragged on, the cavern got wider and scarier to breach. And even though we both love each other and cherish our family, 
We can't seem to find a way to traverse the pain that exists in that concern and find our way back to one another. Joe and I raised Peyton and her brother Caden to be empathetic and compassionate people. In the end, it was that compassion that led Peyton into the woods with Morgan and Anissa. You see, Peyton knew that if she wasn't Morgan's friend, then Morgan wouldn't have any friends. She deeply felt the need to protect Morgan and that every person deserved at least one friend. Peyton is a remarkable human being that survived beyond the unthinkable, but she will struggle with the events of that day and physical emotional scars it left for the rest of her life. We are still trying to figure out what it means to live in the new normal that we have been forced to endure. We didn't choose this life. It was thrust upon us unwillingly, and we've had no choice but to stand up and deal with it in the best way we know how. Peyton has a lifetime of healing ahead of her, and she deserves to be allowed to heal in an environment where she feels safe. I know she will not feel safe if either Morgan or Anissa are released back into the community unsupervised. She has big dreams, and my hope is that nothing stands in her way while she strives to achieve them. Thank you for your consideration, Stacy Lutner. After all these events, the aftermath is still affecting those in all of the girls' lives. Morgan's father still continues to receive threatening phone calls, telling him that he and his daughter are going to burn in hell for what she did. People on a national level were in an uproar claiming that this is evidence that the internet is the devil and that it drives children to commit evil acts. Even the forest that Peyton was almost killed in was completely gutted. It no longer exists. Wow. This shit's crazy. It's fucking heartbreaking. And that whole letter, I actually started tearing up and crying a little bit because I can feel that from a mother's standpoint. <laughs> this fucking really hits her hard. After hearing about the events... An Ohio mother who was attacked by her own daughter believes that her motivations may have been similar. After these incidents, Eric Knudsen, the creator of Slenderman, released a public statement saying, I am deeply saddened by the tragedy in Wisconsin and my heart goes out to the families of those affected by this terrible act. Knudsen has not yet given any personal interviews on the matter, which yeah, I don't blame I him. I not want to either. I mean, I'm glad he stepped up and was like, this was not my intention. In addition to the Slenderman creator's statement, an admin from Creepypasta Wiki, a website that publishes short internet horror folklore such as the Slenderman stories, posted that the website does not endorse or advocate for the killing, worship, and otherwise replication of rituals of fictional works. <laughs> no shit. The website respectfully has stopped publishing these stories for a while now and has an age limit upon website visitation. Additionally, the admin posted, First and most importantly, my condolences go out to all the families involved. I cannot even imagine how painful and confusing and awful this has to be for them. I don't have children, but I can imagine how my mother would feel if something like this happened to me. And it absolutely breaks my heart to even consider her having to go through that. The families of the young ladies who committed this crime also have my heart go out to them. I know this can't be easy for them as well, and I'm sure they'll have to deal with mistargeted backlash and anger even while they try to get through such a trying time themselves. So when I say that I extend my deepest sympathies and my prayers to those affected, I hope that you understand that I mean it. But one group of creepypasta users did not think that this statement was enough. The group under the name Narrators United has created a fundraising campaign via YouCaring, the proceeds of which will go directly to the girl and her family, as well as the organization Safe Horizon, which dedicates itself to the aid of families impacted by crime and abuse, saying, 
As members of Creepypasta community, we'd like to come together as exactly that, a community. A community who will pool their efforts to raise donations for the victim and for the broader charity to aid other children, adults, and families recovering from violent crimes via SafeHorizon.org. In the wake of this cruel event, many people have begun pointing fingers at the Slenderman mythology and by guilt of association, the creepypasta subgenre of horror. It is imperative to understand that these things, like almost all works of the horror literary genre, are fiction. Many of these stories, yes, are filled with an illusion of reality to them in an effort to make them much more unnerving. However, that does not change the fact that they are concoctions of fantasy. It is considered by many that common sense is applied to fantasy and history. We do not repeat the actions of real-life monsters. We do not attempt to replicate the fantasy. We do not in any way condone those who fail to realize the line between fantasy and committing an atrocity. Nor do we condone a lack of security on the parts of the minds of those who read them. Many times when accountability is called into question, the blame is placed not on the perpetrators, but on the supposed fictional root causes. In most cases, the accountability and responsibility is to the teacher who failed to impart the wisdom of what is real and right, and most importantly, failed to pay attention. Hopefully this fundraiser will reach its goal and financial support will be brought to the victim and her family. But will the creepypasta fan base live on? And should it? Is the Slenderman mythology at fault or is there something bigger at hand? I have been a fan of creepypasta for years. I myself was a teenager when I became hooked into the stories of Slenderman, Same. Jeff the Killer, and other cryptids that live on that site. Yep. I personally believe that this event was caused by nothing more than a combination of severe lack of grip on reality and being neglectful of a child's mental health. My heart does go out to Peyton's family and the other families, and I truly hope that Peyton is living the best, happiest life that she deserves. I think that Morgan and Anissa are to blame for this, not the internet, not scary stories, just two girls who took things way too seriously. Let us know in the Q&A section of the episode what you, my lovelies, think of this case. Who or what do you think is to blame? Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for more crazy cryptids and psycho serial killers. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Anchor and click the link in the show notes to become part of our Facebook group where we post discussions and links to our newest episodes. Later!